This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. Today we will be talking about transhumanism, which is something I'm super stoked to talk about with my co-host Mark Galley. Hey, Mark. Hey, good to see you again. We probably have like two dozen questions, don't we? Yeah, maybe more. I think we could probably go on all night, but don't worry, guys. This is still going to be within the normal hour mark of when we finish. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, though, this is like what Mark and I could talk about for like three or four hours. But who do we have to talk about this on the show with? Well, we have someone who is an expert in New Testament and practical theology and has a, an avid interest in science. So I think this is a good combination for us. His name is Douglas Estes. He's a assistant professor of New Testament and practical theology and director of the DMIN program at South University in Columbia, South Carolina. He's been a pastor pastor for 16 years, so he doesn't have his head in the cloud, so that's a good thing. And he's written a number of books, most recently Questions and Rhetoric in the Greek New Testament. And he's been featured in Bible Study Magazine and recently in Christianity Today. So welcome, Douglas. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. So Douglas, I heard you say that both your parents worked for NASA growing up. Yes, that's true. I grew up in very much in a NASA household, so science was always an integral part of the conversation and actually kind of almost a way of life. I mean, when I got ready to go to college, my dad's view was that you study science or nothing else. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, I guess it was nothing else then. He no. was a dogmatic scientist. That's good. But yes, that's right. And, and actually, that's the reason why I ended up uh, majoring, at least in part, in chemistry um, when I did my undergrad was just because that was the viewpoint I had come from. What divisions of NASA were your parents in? Well, my dad was on the engineering side and my mom was on the business side. So my dad um, was electrical engineer and he focused on communications between Earth and space. So wow. cool. That is so cool. We should talk about that today, but I guess we can't. But I have a lot of questions about transhumanism myself, so we'll get to that. Indeed. So let's get into the main topic. And to do that, I actually want to go back to our March magazine, where we ran an article that was entitled In the Image of Our Choosing. And here's how the article started. Imagine sitting in a doctor's office with your spouse. As you discuss the possibility of starting a family, the doctor tells you that you have the option to genetically enhance your child's intelligence. Medical professionals can do this without risking the life of the embryo. They guarantee it to work. Would you do it? So this piece explored the ethical questions raised by a gene editing process known as CRISPR. Think of editing the genome like a find and replace function, wrote author Nathan Barkazi. A tool finds, removes, and replaces a specific sequence of genetic material. The themes and science of this piece overlap um, with the vision of some transhumanists. And I'm going to pause just to give you all a working definition of transhumanism from a feature story that CT actually published back in 2004, where it said, quote, transhumanism is the belief that someday we will re-engineer our natures to such an extent that a post-human species species or several new species will be created that are superior to homo sapiens. I know that was a mouthful. We will be discussing all of this more 
later. Basically, though, in recent years, we've seen some Christians who have argued that transhumanism and Christianity could be compatible. And that's also the theme of a recent piece by Megan Oblivion, where she drew parallels between transhumanism teleology with Christian eschatology. Technology has been used for centuries to fix many human problems, everything from poor vision to a lost limb to a bad heart. Today, science has taken a relatively new turn where recent technological advances have made it possible to alter human DNA in the womb, eliminate inheritable diseases and defects, and even to accent or improve certain character traits before birth. These advances raise deep questions about the role of technology and purpose of humanity. What is technology for? What are humans for? Should technology be used to fix any human limitations? Further, does the fact that we have technology give us the obligation or even right to use the technology? So this week on Quick to Listen, we'll be doing our best to do a deep dive into a lot of these issues. And we'll, we'll probably be able to solve them all within 45 to 50 minutes, I would think. For sure. For sure. <laughs> Guys, you just figured out the hack to understanding everything. So I know that I just gave a bunch of big words here, and I really want to explain all of this stuff for our audience. I do want to take just three seconds to remind everyone that who considers themselves a fan of the show that the best way to show that fandom is to subscribe to Christianity Today magazine. And Mark, I just wanted to say that one thing that we've been doing in our magazine in recent months is we've had more science articles. Yeah, we've made a deliberate effort to kind of show the intersection of Christian faith and science in a way we haven't for we haven't done it consistently. Yeah, if I recall, you worked on a magazine called Behemoth. Yes, we, that was the whole purpose of Behemoth, but we couldn't make that go from a business point of view, but we wanted to continue doing some of the things we did in the Behemoth, which included inter the intersection of theology and science. Yeah, and so, you know, that's how we ended up with this article on this gene editing process that raised a lot of the questions that we'll be talking about today. And it also covers a lot of other things. We actually had an article that was published about mosquitoes a couple of days ago. And I think it just kind of reminds us just how big God really is in these issues when we're deliberately looking yeah. at stuff about science. Amen, yeah. So for everyone who wants a subscription and to support this podcast, just go to orderct.com slash quick to listen. It's orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right, Douglas, are you ready to be grilled? <laughs> uh, I am ready. Okay, so Douglas, I gave our listeners a definition of transhumanism, but I'm wondering if you could give them a longer version than the 10-second version I gave. Sure, ha happy to do that. I, one of the challenges with transhumanism and just understanding the concept is it is and can be quite broad. There's not really one agreed upon definition. Um, generally, though, it means and it refers to the idea that as a result of technology that we as human people, we are on the cusp of evolving to a better state of existence. So the trans in transhumanism is a reference to a transition or a transformation that technology will allow people to undergo. When you think of transhumanism, there's, there's really two avenues or ways that this will play out in our world. Number one is biological enhancement. So whether we're talking about medical cures or the extension of life or even cybernetics. And then the second avenue is artificial intelligence interfacing. So if we upload our memories or our thoughts or our reasons and rationales to the cloud or to some supercomputer one day, that would be the second avenue. Now, you one thing you alluded to, which is an offshoot of transhumanism, is the concept of posthumanism, which is the idea that once this transition uh, reaches the point of no return, that we will cease to be human, at least as it's 
always been traditionally defined and that will be something entirely different. You know, people come up with creative names like techno sapiens and, and similar terms to describe this new humanity, um, this new evolved form of humanity that we will be. Yeah. So as you see the landscape of transhumanism, like you said, there's a varieties of it. I mean, what, what are parts of the transhumanist efforts that Christians can affirm and value in your view? Well, I think there definitely can be a case made for transhumanism from a, a Christian perspective. And and in general, my reasoning for this would follow the same reasoning as a Christian case for any advances in medicine or eradicating disease and poverty or even creating some of the cool things that we have in our modern world. Personally, I find that God created people in his image. That's primarily relational. But secondarily, we have intellectual curiosity, a desire to create, and a recognition that we are situated in a world that we bear responsibility for caring for. I, I think the exceptions come in when we use technology in a way that uh, either hurts people or moves us outside of whatever God's plan for our lives is. And that's where the problems come in. Okay, so what do people misunderstand about tra transhumanism? Well, I think that the average person, the average Christian probably doesn't have the word transhumanism on their radar um, in a very specific sense though a lot of the ideas are. I mean, if we go to the movies and we watch the Avengers, we see Captain America, but he would be an example of a transhuman in a sort because he is a genetically modified or biologically modified human who can do things that we can't do. And in the same way for us, for people in times past, looking at us today with modern medicine, we would seem to be unusual or different in the same way that Captain America perhaps is to, to viewers today. So we're already surrounded with the idea of transhumanism. It seems to me that the biggest misunderstanding for Christians for transhumanism is that they think that it is just science fiction, that it's some crazed scientist ideas that is never going to happen. But I think that dismissing this issue uh, will be a huge mistake for us because it will not allow Christians to engage with the issue. The, the example I always give is um, if you go back to the 1960s and you, you see an episode of Star Trek, you always see James Kirk, and, and he has this device, and he's speaking to the Enterprise in orbit. Uh, the reality is that seemed very impossible to people in the 1960s. They probably didn't think that they would ever need to reconcile that with their day-to-day -day life. But, I mean, I can go to the Google App Store right now, and I'm sure I can download an app that would allow me to call somebody at the International Space Station. Um, and I don't even need to flip my phone open uh, the same way Kirk did. So the rapid increase of science is occurring. It's not going to stop. And I think the biggest misunderstanding Christians will have is if they don't begin to engage it. Is there any reason you think that explains, I don't know, either our like naivete towards this, these type of technological advances, or is there something theological that's going on? What do you make of it? That's a great question. I, I think that what happens is, is that we get so situated in culture that we don't seem to feel the speed at which it is increasing. So when we talk about transhumanism, there's going to be a subset of that, which is Ray Kurzweil and other people's idea of the singularity, that we're going to hit this exponential curve where technology is just going to take off. And I think that right now, because we haven't hit that curve, that people feel like, well, it's changing, but it's not changing so fast that I really need to deal with it. It's almost like the frog in the pot you know, analogy that people use. And so 
time goes on and it just seems to increase, but it doesn't seem to radically make anything different because it's happening slower. But it doesn't give us the chance to address some of the questions, the important questions, if we don't get ahead of this curve a little bit. You used a phrase that you th- that suggested you think uh, the idea of singularity is actually a possibility. Is that your intent? Yeah, it, it is my intent. I, I do think that uh, the idea of the singularity probably does have value. I think there um, will be a time where technology will increase uh, so rapidly that it seems impossible. I mean, it used to be you had to wait two years for an iPhone. Uh, now maybe you have to wait one year. Soon, maybe a couple of months. Soon, a couple of days. There was a time when people would say things like, you know, if only my relative had lived 60 more years, he may not have passed away from a heart attack. But there will be a time where we may say, if only my relative had lived another year, that they may not have passed away from pancreatic cancer. So I do think that we are on that curve. Where I would disagree with Kurzweil and some of these other folks is that I'm not sure that we are as far along as they might suggest. And I think that's because they tend to uh, link it to Moore's Law and the development of computers and uh, recent technological advances, whereas I'm more concerned about seeing it in the span of human history. Can you talk a little bit about just the premise of Moore's Law? I know that it has to do with the rate at which technological advances are made. Moore's Law is the idea that computing power will increase exponentially over time. And it is a law that has pretty much proven to be true um, since it was first argued. And there have been times uh, since the advent of computers where people said, no, no, you know, Moore's Law is not going to hold here. But so far, it pretty much has held. So that is a compelling argument for the singularity and the and the rapid advance of technology. And that law is that uh, computer power doubles every how many years? Doubling every year. Wow, that's amazing. Yet yeah, that is. Well, he revised the forecast in 75. <laughs> so anywhere from a year to, to two years, depending on who you talk right. to. But but it definitely is doubling at pretty much close to the rate at which they predicted. So one of the challenges with the idea of the singularity is that it is very much linked to Moore's law and that idea that computers is what's going to get us to the singularity. And I think that that's only one part of the equation. It's not the only part. I, I feel like I've seen this interesting phenomena when it comes to Christians and technology, which where I will often hear Christians kind of... I don't know, rail against culture, so to speak. There seems to be a much more positive embrace of technology, or at least the mediums that we we get to use as a result of newer technology. You know, as a Christian, when I hear the term singularity, is this a term that should provoke more fear or should it provoke excitement? Like, what is a what is a Christian response? For myself, I think it promotes excitement. I think that technology is always going to be something that as a person you experience as being new as you grow older. Another way of saying it would be there are things that we consider to be ho-hum because they're just part of our lives today, everything from the automobile to um, the cell phone, but those things are were at one time new and different and strange and unusual, and there were concerns that people would raise about, is this good or is this bad? So in my view, 
view, the singularity and technological advancement is something that we should be excited about. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's not an ethical response or consideration that needs to be used, of course. But generally speaking, just the improvement of technology is a good thing. So, yeah, let's get into the ethical question then. What, uh, what would be some ethical considerations that would help us understand when and how to use this advance in technology? Well, if you ask me, generally speaking... Should we use technology to improve human life? Is there any limitation to using technology to improve human life? I would say yes, we should, and no, there's not a limitation. However, in saying that, that is more of a, a general response. It doesn't get into the actual details of what happens, because whenever you have a situation where technology is going to be applied, because it's a tool, it's going to change the dynamics. And so as a result of that, you're going to create ethical trade-offs. Sometimes the ethical trade-offs seem, well, an obvious yes, but other times it seems less obvious yes. So, for example, if I think about using technology, a relatively recent technology would be vaccines. So when I think about using a vaccine as a parent, um, if I think about should I or should I not use the technology of vaccine to not allow my children hopefully to have polio, then my answer would be unreservedly yes. But partly that's because I grew up after that. Um, I didn't grow up in a time where a vaccine was new and there were questions about, you know, the the effectiveness of this technology and what would the trade-offs be. But at the same time, in the example that we talked about earlier, um, when it comes to gene editing a baby in the womb and that sort of thing, that's a new technology. And so we have to carefully think through what the trade-offs are of using that new technology in that situation. I hear you making an, a very interesting observation, which is just that there is there's a period or a window when you know the ethics of a particular technology are getting discussed but shortly after there's this discussion people kind of move on and accept the technology and then future generations are born and they grow up not really questioning why that is how it is is that correct yeah that's that's exactly correct that's not always perfect or a good thing but it is the way the world works. Well, it just makes me think that Christians who are interested in these matters have to be aware and cognizant that they don't have a very long time necessarily to tease out these ramifications or that they may need to be more proactive in being part of this discussion. Well, a couple of uh, exceptions to that would be there is, you speaking of vaccine, there's been a huge pushback on vaccines in the last decade or so. But a more uh, cogent pushback on accepting the technologies that most of us have come to accept comes from a writer like Wendell Berry, who has shown the disastrous effects of technological farming, so to speak, mass agribusiness. Uh, he has some compelling arguments why, how that has destroyed community life and, and is destroying our planet. Now, people disagree with him on his argument, but it is a, it is a strong argument that nonetheless some people make about technologies that the rest of us accept, but some, he's a Christian, say we've gone too far and we need, to, we need to slow down and think more about the technologies we are adapting. This is true. And this is not to say that Wendell Berry is wrong, only that Wendell Berry's arguments, it would be difficult for them to have systemic repercussions and to alter trajectories. Right. Doing. He's very much a, a, a lone voice in a larger conversation. And one of the biggest pushbacks would be we have a planet with 6.5 billion miles to feed now, and 
uh, many people would argue we can't have we can't feed those mouths without this modern technology. So that's just a little a little other side of the ex- whether we accept or do not accept technologies. There's a critical window where an argument like Barry's may have been more effective. You know, if it had power in the discussion earlier, um, perhaps. And uh, I, I think too that if you know if we're dealing with say gene editing. If we're going to have the conversation, Christian theology and philosophy cannot be years late to the party. It won't work. It, the The world will have already moved on. And so I think that that's a, a, a key issue with the with transhumanism is that Christian theology and philosophy have to be forward thinking, oftentimes maybe more forward thinking than they're used to being. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive, church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. And I'm also really just curious, too, about the ways in which we can talk about and tease out these ramifications without resorting to fear as a tactic to kind of move people in a particular direction, right? I mean, so often we see any type of argument for or against something being based upon, well, what what will happen? What will be the unknown? But I do think that part of being a Christian is being able to to not have to rely on those arguments or to rely on more than just a base fear. Yeah, but the it seems to me at the time when the technology is emerging, we don't know for a fact what it will produce. So in a sense you ha- the the some of the main arguments I've heard is for any new technology is that what it might do to us, which is not a very like you're saying, it tends to be not a very persuasive argument because the people who are developing the technology can tell you concretely what it's actually going to do. I agree with you 100%, Douglas, that if I uh, would have liked to heard Wendell Berry's arguments early in the conversation about agribusiness and math, the technology used to, to farm and huge millions of acres of land at a time. But I dare say, I'm, I'm, I don't know how convinced I am that it could have made a difference. But you're right in the sense that the earlier we bring up the, the issue, the better. No question about it. You know, clearly fear cannot be a part of the argument if we want to make a difference in the conversation. People will not respond well to it. The The way I think to to have the impact that we need to have is, number one, development of good ethics um, through our philosophy, through our theology. And number two is how we live out our lives as believers in our world. Um, and the more consistent, coherent we do that with our theology and with our edit- ethics, the more clear I think that the case can be made for our position on, on using technology. It seems to me that when I hear transhumanists talk about enhancing human life, they mean one of, they usually talk about one of three things. They talk about enhancing our intelligence, so it's vastly superior, or they talk about enhancing our biological, physical capabilities so that we can run a mile faster and lift more weight and 
whatever, or they talk about how we can live longer. I think everyone would agree that those are Christian values in some sense, but they're lower, lower, lower case values. Are there any transhumanists who are talking about using technology to help people to become more patient or compassionate or kind or loving, serving or sacrificial? Largely, I would say the answer to that is no. And, and that's because a lot of the conversation is being directed by people who are probably not in the Christian community. And as a result of that, they are thinking in a more functional way of how do we get this done. So I think one of the reasons Christians like myself are suspicious of the trans—what's uh, the word we're looking here? Trans, transhumanist <laughs> movement. Transhumanistic, yeah, <laughs> probably. Yeah. Is because the values that are driving it are not anti-Christian, but they're, they're, I would call them sub-Christian. They're not, they're not talking about the human being in a way that is— uh, hum- humanity at its fullest and greatest and best. And I guess I get concerned that we will end up just using the t- technology to advance character traits or biological traits that will actually not make us better human beings, just stronger and live longer. I agree with you that ultimately society will develop technology that will simply be put to use for egotistical or selfish reasons. We would like to say that the technology that's come in the 20th century has been to better other people, but the truth is is that most technology that has come about in the 20th century, examples that we could think of, have come about to make our lives easier. And so the trajectory that transhumanism is on is the same trajectory. I, I think, though, that that calls into question what our role is as believers. Even when people were developing automobiles and they were developing airplanes, they were developing vaccines and all these miracles of the 20th century, as believers, our call is to speak truth and life into those situations. And I I don't think it's going to be any different. I think that, you know, 100 years from now, when uh, people have robotic arms and robotic legs or whatever, I don't really know if that's that will be true. But let's assume for a second it does. I don't think that changes my mission as a Christian at that point. I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit practically about like what we can see on the horizon as far as ways that technology is going to change us as humans in the near future. I don't know whether that all of that is classified under transhumanism. I don't necessarily know when the line of transhumanism starts versus stuff like we were talking about earlier, like vaccines or um, artificial limbs. But Douglas, what are you seeing as something that will probably seem commonplace in the next 15 or 20 years? The problem is in the 15 years, my view is incremental, is that meaning that you will still probably have an iPhone, but it just will be smaller and faster than what you have now. I'm not sure in 15 years that we will have any type of major change in dynamic, though we could. That's always the question. I mean, I'm very interested in uh, the concept of the uh, autonomous vehicle, um, whether uh, on the road or in the air, um, that is a possibility, I suppose, within 15 years. So you may end up having fully automated cars and potentially fully automated air vehicles in 15 years. But I, I, I tend to think that's probably more, it could be more 20 or 25 years out. Well, that settles it for me. I'm against technology because if the iPhone gets any smaller, <laughs> I won't be able to read it. As it is, I have an iPhone 6S. I want the f- iPhone 11S, whatever, whatever's bigger. Well, and, th- and that may be out next month at the rate that technology <laughs> improves. There you go. You know, obviously, technology does make things faster, cheaper, sooner. And so the 
perhaps the one way I would answer Morgan's question is that life will probably start to feel even more frenetic than it does now. If people feel today that, wow, things just change really quickly and it's disconnected and I feel disconnected, the feeling of disconnection is going to increase. Is gene editing something that we should feel will go mainstream within the next 50 years? I would say yes to that. Wow. I, I think it I think it would within 50 years, most likely. Okay. And what are the type of things that gene editing at this point that people think gene editing could accomplish? Oh, some things that we would affirm as Christians, or at least you would affirm, because at this point it's so speculative. Which which parts of gene editing would you put a big question mark by and say, we need to think about that before we start doing that? Okay. I think the starting place for a question like gene editing comes down to um, what our role is as Christians and how we live in the world and how we see our place in the world. So let, let me give you an example. The question came up earlier about whether or not we would ever let one of our children be edited genetically so that they're smarter or run faster or whatever the, you know, a similar type of edit like that. And would that be good or would that be bad? And, and the parallel that I think of is that as a parent, um, let's say as a parent that I live somewhere in urban America and I have the financial wherewithal to send my kids to a private school or a charter school, should I do that? Or should I just send them to a public school? And the question is not over the debate of schooling here, but over whether or not my resources give me privilege to be able to do something good for my my child. I think that, uh, and I'm not saying right or wrong here, but I think that most, many Christian parents would say, no, there's not a problem with me spending my resources to send my kids to a, to a better school. But the effect is, is that you're going to have a a separation between perhaps kids that are in less good schools and kids that are in better schools because Christians and other people make choices based on what's best for them. So if you take that as a possible parallel and you apply it to gene editing, one day will it seem wrong for you to pay extra to edit your child so that they will become more intelligent or become more athletic. It may not seem so wrong 50 years from now because it may just seem like one of those things that we can do that improves life. Again, there's arguments against both. You know, some people would make a nuanced argument against uh, private school or charter school. The, I think it's the same similar argument with gene editing at that point. It would create a society where people of means could uh, enhance their their child's genes and it would create a greater separation between those who have the means of wealth and those who do not. That's not an uh, unimaginable consequence of that sort of thing. Exactly. And from a Christian worldview, that has always been a challenge of living in our world. So there's never been a time where the world has been, you know, a 1960s dream, peace, love, and harmony. There's always been haves and have-nots. And as believers, we have to navigate that environment. The the technology just increases the potential for haves and have-nots, or perhaps maybe strengthens the haves over the haves-nots. Well, and in this case, we're talking about how Christians' decisions can change who they align themselves with and who and, and, and whether they see themselves as part of this more, quote-unquote, marginalized community or as this centered 
gene edited community as well. I think it's, I I just wanted to read this part from an Andy Crouch interview that ran on our site last week when he was talking about tech. Um, And the question that he was asked was, as technology becomes even easier, even more ubiquitous, will families and local churches have to move towards more and more radical choices? Andy says, the next frontier, the next real step change in human history is biological. The next, quote-unquote, easy everywhere in the 21st century is about permanently modifying the conditions of human embodiment. And this will lead to the exploitation of vulnerable human beings, especially unborn human beings. So Andy goes on to talk about the fact that in Denmark, um, they basically have no more people who have Down syndrome. And that's because there's been abortions for unborn babies who have um, Down syndrome. And he, he basically says, in this kind of environment, the only families that will have children with Down syndrome will be Christian families. In the future, Christians are going to be the community that takes the outcast from the technologically modified race of human beings and cares for them. Most profound will be our willingness to welcome people with a range of abilities, including disabilities. I think that's interesting because he's casting a vision that Christians will have more ties with people who would not be part of this genetically modified um, or gene edited crowd. But it is fascinating when you cast it, um, honestly, Douglas, in the idea of schooling, because in our country today, Christians fall all over the map with that, right? And there's not some sort of consensus, whereas Andy seems to suggest that there would be some sort of consensus on this. Well, I love what Andy said, um, though I'm going to disagree with one small part in a second, but let me address the the main the main part of that. Uh, to me, I think you have a beautiful picture there of what God's people can do, where you have a situation where you have a Down syndrome child, and we have the ability to love and care for it, knowing that that child is made in the image of God. As a, as a scholar of of early Christianity uh, and the New Testament, it, it oftentimes makes me think of what it was like to be in the early church, where you know Christians were not necessarily always people of power. In fact, a lot of times they were not, um, but were sort of the outcasts, sort of the people that uh, were not considered to be good in society. And for us, the increase of technology definitely does have the feel that we are moving back towards the time of the early church, where the church will be known for caring for the least of these. And by the way, perhaps ridiculed by society. I mean, Andy's right. Society will see the Down syndrome child perhaps as a waste of resources or a waste of human life. But we as the church, we will be able to speak to larger society as a, as a testimony and a witness that that child is is life and that child is special and important to God. The, the one thing, though, that I would probably nuance uh, with Um, our conversation is that I'm not sure that it's an either or kind of thing. A hundred years from now, as as a Christian believer, I think that I can see myself both A, being willing, if I had the resources, to edit uh, my child's DNA so that perhaps they're smarter or perhaps, uh, you know, they can run faster uh, because that tends to be what people in society do. But at the same time, if I find out from the doctor that uh, my child has Down syndrome, that still keeping that child. So I would actually have maybe two children, a child who is genetically modified, but also a child who has Down syndrome. And my testimony is that I I'm not, you know, being a Luddite and rejecting technology. I'm using technology that has become very commonplace. But at the same time, I'm not abusing technology. I'm not allowing technology to change my uh, worldview and my relationship with God and my core 
conviction and principles. I do think uh, that one of the things you hadn't mentioned specifically but only referred to is that one of the things that made Christians distinctive is they were the ones who were picking up babies who were left abandoned by Roman families who didn't want them. And that was a remarkable, remarkable witness in that period. And so I, I would think in the future, we will very well may be the, the, the one one of the few peoples in the world that actually care for people that the rest of the world thinks are marginalized. Great discussion, everybody. Unfortunately, I have even more questions, but we'll do a part two at some other point. This is the time of the show now that we call Precious Moments, and I ask everyone to share something that is bringing them joy. Douglas, do you want to start? Yeah, one thing that brings me joy, especially in the last week, is the friendships and relationships that I have with other people. Um, Just knowing that people uh, care for you, knowing that you can call someone that you consider a friend, whether you've talked to them recently or a long time ago, and have them to speak truth in your life. It's a powerful thing, those relationships and those friendships. And so that's one thing that I'm thankful for. Awesome. Do you have a website or are you on social media? Yes. uh, I have a website, douglasestes.com, and I'm on Twitter and everything else also under just Douglas Estes. Mark? Yeah, my uh, precious moment is coming starting tomorrow. I'm taking two days off to go into the country and have two writing days. So I have a 5,000-word article due on Monday and a 20-minute talk due on Monday night. Oh, this is bringing you joy, though? This is bringing me joy in the sense that it's it's going to be a change of scenery, change of pace. And uh, even though I, I don't enjoy writing, I'm like Robert Louis Stevenson, I enjoy having written. So I'm looking forward to probably Friday afternoon when I'm done to that to that precious moment, having written these two pieces. <laughs> Where are you going? I'll be going up to Wisconsin, up to a campground in Wisconsin that has Wi-Fi. <laughs> just to get away from that things. glamping glamping you know yeah exactly yeah wi-fi is the writer's curse though exactly so you can't have everything you can't get away get away from it completely if you're going to have a writing day i think i would do good if they like ration the wi-fi you know like you got it for three hours a day and you had to use it very carefully there you go. mark yeah or do you have a newsletter that so you i hide? i have a newsletter that people can subscribe to uh, it's called The Galley Report, and if you go to christianitytoday.com slash Report, you can read the recent edition or subscribe and get it in your new uh, email box. So this should be a precious moment, but I don't know if it is. Tomorrow's my birthday. Happy birthday. I don't know. Thank you. I don't know if it's a precious moment. It's been stressing me out. <laughs> it is my golden birthday, so that means that you turn the age that your birthday is on. And I like want to be excited about it, but every time I try to think of like what I should do for it, because I'm like, it's my golden birthday. It has to be marvelous. I've just been feeling exhausted instead of really like elated, which is... Kind of we'll pray for you that it become a precious moment. How about that? Okay, I'll update everyone if it actually ends up being awesome. All right, and you can wish me happy birthday on Twitter at M E P A Y N L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, Douglas, so much for coming on. I invite everyone that has feedback to go on Twitter at ctpodcast, facebook.com slash ctpodcasts. We obviously know we touched a really deep issue this week, and we invite you to share your thoughts there. Thanks so much to our producers, Richard Clark and Cray Allred. You guys are awesome. We invite everyone to go to iTunes um, where they can leave a review. That's the biggest way to tell us your support. And this podcast is also available on iTunes and wherever you want to get your podcasts. Another way to support this podcast is by subscribing. So you can do that at orderct.com slash quick to listen. And we'll see you all next week.
This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.